Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Three Course Politics Podcast. I'm Josh. And I'm Hills. And today we have a uh, appetizer, an entree, a side dish, and a dessert that is going to rock your socks off. It's going to rock the vote and rock your socks. And if your socks get rocked off, it's okay. Go ahead and put a new pair on because we're in quarantine and you're probably not too far from your bedroom. So. Or you could just rock without socks. That's good. That's very, that's very dangerous. We all know that coronavirus comes in through your feet. So uh, under your toenails, exactly. <laughs> uh, today on the pod, we're going to talk about uh, Trump, Trump's approval metrics uh, among seniors and other age groups. For your entree, we're going to have things that Republicans say they believe, but it's become very apparent under COVID uh, that, that that they do not believe in them. For your life under quarantine, we're going to talk about the first thing you're going to do when we get back to normal, and your dessert is a little bit of three-course politics dream team. So, Hills, how does that sound to you? Uh, I love it. Uh, I love it so much, and I'm especially excited to call out Republicans on their uh, their BS because we see too much ground to them all the time, so I'm excited. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times in this podcast we talk about, you know, Democrats and things that Democrats should do. It's very often, it's very uh, not often that we talk about, you know, what Republicans say they believe, and then the evidence actually behind it when they get put into government. Because I think if we've learned anything right now, it's that we need uh, good government and we need big government that can solve big problems. So, well, we're seeing what we have when we have bad government, and I and <laughs> some people, forty percent of people, love it. So we should, yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, but before we get started, have you subscribed? Please do so now. It'll help uh, get you the episodes as soon as they are published. All you have to do is go to our podcast, wherever you're listening, and click the subscribe button. If you want to go one step further and rate us, uh, and be honest, it, it will be uh, very good for us, and it will help us spread the word about our podcast. So please subscribe. Please rate us. We love any kind of feedback that you have, but only the good feedback. Only the good feedback. I also want to mention, I totally forgot, uh, you may notice we have new podcast art in your feeds. Oh, yeah. We had a little bit of a makeover. We paid for it, but we had a little bit of a makeover, and I hope you all enjoy the new art. I think it helps um, communicate what we're about a little bit better. It's more professional than what we had <laughs> before, <laughs> and and uh, it looks pretty nice. So Yeah. No, it looks great, and you're really just seeing... As Hills and I do more of this, you know, we're getting more comfortable with this. We're um, taking it. I, I, I don't know if I want to say more seriously. We would have been serious about this, but we were, we're taking it up a level. Um, we've gone from the stock image of Obama <laughs> to what we had last time to an actual professional design. Um, and it looks great. People can find us more and they're not going to be like, I don't know what that clip art is of a... <laughs> Of of <laughs> which I found by the way, which I'm neither proud nor ashamed of. But yeah, uh, but now okay. we have a new one. There you go, we have a new one. So uh, we have a new um, cover art, but you are still getting your pre-dinner shot, and that's coming up next. Okay, so it is time for your pre-dinner shot. So here's your question. How many U.S. presidents have lost the popular vote? So once again, how many U.S. presidents have lost the popular vote? We've had presidential elections in this country since 1788-89. How many times and how many presidents have lost the popular vote? Hills, do you have your uh, initial thoughts on this question? This might be the hardest question we've ever asked, honestly. <laughs> Like I, I'm, I'm serious. This may be the hardest question we've had to date, and I, I don't, I don't know how many people will get it right, but the answer will certainly surprise you. Yes. So you can either uh, give us your guess out loud now. We won't hear it, but you can do it. And at the end of the podcast, we will give you the answer for those of you that want to stick around for the end. So that was your pre-dinner shot, and we have our appetizer coming up next. So, for your appetizer, we're going to talk polls, age approval, and what this all means for Biden versus Trump. So, we're going to start with polling. And when you look at polling, it's really important to determine whether you are looking at 
LV or RV. LV is likely voters, people who are likely to vote. They've voted in the past. They usually vote in the midterms. They vote in off-year elections. They are likely to vote. RV is registered voters. These are people who are registered to vote. Just because you are registered, though, does not mean that you are going to go to the polls. Maybe you can't go because you have a job. Maybe you don't know where your polling location is. Maybe you have other responsibilities that prevent you from going to the polls to vote. So it's really important to determine LV versus RV. I think you're more likely to get RV uh, polls, and the few LV polls you can get offer a really good picture of where the race is at at that moment. Yeah, and LV usually, there are usually more LV polls, which are usually more accurate, closer to the election date. Right, right. So um, so I'm going to read through the last 10 polls that we have from Real Clear Politics that involve either a general election matchup between Biden and Trump or a state matchup between Biden and Trump. And then Hills is going to give me his 10-second reaction to the polls. Hills, are you ready? I am born ready for this. Okay, so our first poll is from Florida. It is a Fox News poll. It has Biden 46, Trump 43. It is amongst registered voters. Hills, your turn. Uh, the, the plus three is really good, uh, and it's from Fox, so it's great. <laughs> there you go. All right, we have another Florida poll. This has Biden 46, Trump 42. It is from Quinnipiac, and it is amongst registered voters. Uh, the the plus four makes me think it's good, but Quinnipiac isn't always. It's it's a good polling place, but not always the on on point. So a little concerned. Okay, and then we have our last Florida poll. It is Biden forty eight, Trump forty eight. It is a Saint Pete poll. It is amongst registered voters. So this concerns me both because registered voters usually try Democratic, and now it's a tie. However, St. Pete is usually accurate, so this probably gives Trump a plus one or two, which might be where the race is. And it's worth pointing out the St. Pete poll was was the uh, latest of, or the earliest, I should say, of the um, Florida polls. The Fox News and the, Quin- and the Quinnipiac one are the mo- more recent ones, so it could point to where the race in Florida is trending. But moving on to our first LV poll, okay, likely voters. This is Pennsylvania. It's got Biden 48, Trump 42. It's the Susquehanna poll, and it is amongst likely voters. That's really, really good for Biden. Plus six LV in Pennsylvania. You you can't, this is what you want to see for Biden. And the next uh, Pennsylvania poll is Biden 50, Trump 42. It is Fox News. It is amongst registered voters. Again, exactly what you want to see for Biden. You want to see a higher RV, which means that your LV is likely correct, which is maybe Biden plus five or something like that. Right. The fact that he has registered voters in Pennsylvania up eight, but then likely voters up six is very good for Biden. Uh, We have a New Jersey poll. I don't know why, but we do. Uh, It's Biden 54, Trump 38 from Monmouth. And it is uh, a registered voters. It's a little bit low for Biden, but, you know, people could just not realize the election's close and they have a couple of, you know, that doesn't necessarily equal 100%. So I think it'll be a little bit higher. So that's fine. We have an Indiana poll that is Trump 52, Biden 39. It is an Indy politics poll and it is amongst the likely voters. Not great for Biden, and it's just, <laughs> I could think, <laughs> underscores how much Indiana has kind of moved from 2008, where Obama just won it. It's so ungettable now. So Right, especially with Pence on the ticket. I feel like it's it's uh, impossible. Yeah, that's so. a good point. Um, the next poll is Michigan poll. It is uh, Biden 49, Trump 41. It's a Fox News poll, and it is amongst registered voters. It's a good poll for Biden. I think it underscores that Biden is up in Michigan. I wish this was an LV because then we can get a more better snapshot, but pretty good. And then our last two polls are general election polls. Uh, we have we have Biden 48, Trump 42. Among, the poll is the Economist YouGov poll, and it is amongst registered voters. It's a little bit low, the plus six on that for Biden, but... You know, it's so far out. Who knows? But still good. Good that he's out. Right. And the last poll is a general election poll. 
Biden 49, Trump 42. It's an NBC Washington or Wall Street Journal poll, and it is amongst registered voters. So this shows me that the, the point value is not significant enough, but it shows me that Biden is generally up by five to seven nationally, which doesn't mean much, but this is among RV. So the race is not as close, but Biden is still up. I think that's a good takeaway from the polling is that the race is close. It's much closer than I think Democrats may believe or may like to believe, but Biden is up right now. So, yeah, Anyways, yeah, he's, that was he's up. Yeah, this is great. That's great. I think we should do this more often. Thanks for the idea, Josh. I think it's yeah, a I actually good list like polls. that idea. It's something to I think we should do maybe like once a month is just look at where the last ten polls are. Yeah. And listeners, this <laughs> we're talking about this live on the, on the podcast. So this is what you're going to be getting. You better get ready. <laughs> yeah. You better be ready for that. Uh, we're going to go into age approval for and age and race approval so far where the voters stand right now. So the older voters, so older voters are souring on Trump a bit. This could be because of the coronavirus. It could be because of anything else. It could be stock portfolios, whatever. America is in a recession and seniors are pretty pissed. Mid-March, Trump was, you know, close to 19 points ahead on 65 or older voters. Now Trump is about minus one or so on 65 or older voters. That is a huge swing. So Biden won't win 65 plus voters, but he needs to cut into the margins, uh, it, especially for, you know, between the 46 and 64 and 65 and plus age group too, because this is where Trump really ran up the margins in 2016 because older voters just didn't like Hillary Clinton. But for whatever fault that is, uh, Biden just needs, he doesn't need to win these groups outright. Obviously, if he did, it'd be great. He just needs to cut into the margins. So this is really good. And this is now the time where Biden needs to play for the older voters while they're pissed off at Trump. And, you know, as you know, Biden won the 65 older Democratic voters in huge numbers in the primary. So his campaign better be focusing on these older voters now while they're pissed off at Trump. Yeah, I completely agree, Hills. I think that, you know, we it's been a long time since I think we've had a Democrat who can appeal to this age group. So the fact that Biden is uh, at least looking to be competitive amongst older voters who are very upset with Trump is uh, a really good thing for his campaign. And like you said, he doesn't have to win this group. I, in fact, he won't win. When we watch in November, don't look for Biden to win the 65-plus group. Look for him to cut deep into the margins, because if he can do that, it, it bodes well for the rest of the night. Yeah, I completely agree. We're going to talk about the Latino vote, and this is probably not great numbers for Biden. So there was a new poll out, um, and it has Biden at 59% of the Latino vote and Trump at 23, which leaves about 20% up for grabs. If you remember in the primaries, Latinos was an area of concern for Biden. They went very, very heavy for Bernie. And it looks like they're not coming out in huge numbers for Biden. So Biden has to do something to try to reach those voters. Because these voters are going to be huge in uh, states like Nevada, in states like uh, Arizona, in states like New Mexico, you know, Texas. Uh, these voters are going to be huge and, you know, Biden's hopeful to win New Mexico, hopeful to win Arizona, and he can be competitive in Texas. He's going to need to draw these voters out, right? So this is the time where Biden needs to put in the work and figure out what issues are important to these voters and figure out how he can help them get to his campaign. I mean, one potential option could be a VP pick. If he chooses um, a VP pick that's popular amongst Latinos, then it might help drive those numbers a little bit. Um, and while the numbers that he has, 59, is lower than we would like, it's also important to remember that Trump has a hard time getting above 25%. Um, so what, 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 we, what the Biden campaign really needs is for this 20% who's undecided to, instead of sitting out, because they probably won't go for Trump, but instead of sitting out and not going to the polls, going to the polls and voting for Biden. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I think this really underscores, you know, Biden's weaknesses are with Latinos and young voters. So this is one of the things he needs to focus on. We cannot, and Latinos are just, they're not a single issue voters, right? They're not just concerned about immigration. It's not, right, I'm yeah. sure it's something on their mind, but it's not something 
that their paramount concern is about. So Biden needs to actually reach out to these people. And I think that's a really good, really good, you know, analysis you had there. Uh, by race, um, you know, Latinos was the one glaring thing we wanted to highlight. But by race, um, the NBC Wall Street Journal poll had a breakdown of race. And we I will link uh, the this this data. It was by Steve Kornacki, our favorite NBC man. Uh, white voters. Trump is 51%, Biden at 42%. That's actually pretty good for Biden because Trump mm -hmm. blew Hillary Clinton out with white voters. So if Biden can creep up that number or maintain steadily or something like that, Biden can has a path to victory because Trump overperformed with white voters in 2016. Black voters, Trump at 7%, Biden at 85%. This is generally accurate. I mean, I think Biden could be a little bit higher and would turn out, but I think the seven eighty five percent split is usually pretty accurate. And this is where exactly what we were talking about before, Hispanic voters. Trump at 26%, Biden at 60, which is generally tracked with what we just told you about, the fifty the fifty-nine twenty-three. So Trump getting about that twenty-five percent is what he got around last time, but the the problem for Biden is that Biden needs to get more than the sixty and keep Trump to the twenty-five. That's what he needs to do. And if he doesn't do that, he's gonna be in big trouble. Yeah, no, I, I uh, completely agree. Um, and Hills, just we have actually have some breaking news here on the podcast. Um, there was a new poll that was released in Texas that was just released this morning. Uh, it is amongst it is from the Texas Tribune and the University of Texas poll. It is amongst registered voters, and it has Biden trailing Trump by five points in Texas. Hills, ten second reaction, go. Uh, pretty good for Biden because registered voters don't mean likely voters. Actually, I'm not sure if it's good. It's good because five points is not that much for Texas. Right, right. So um, anyways, I just threw you on the spot there and you handled it well. So I'm proud of you. You see, I don't know whether the RV is low on Trump or the IV, RV is high on Trump because RVs usually tend democratic. So I'm not sure. Uh, right. Well, no. Well, if when an LV, if an LV poll comes out and it's, Trump plus three, that's really good for Yes, I would agree. All right, so the last thing that we're going to talk about here is uh, Bernie supporters, okay? We've talked about Bernie supporters before, but we will uh, talk about them again. <laughs> um, so 61% of Bernie supporters, they want Warren as a VP. This is the highest amongst any of Biden's potential vice presidential picks. So it kind of creates a a bit of a dilemma for Biden, but we'll get to that. Um, it was also in a poll recent that 80, 80%, 80% of Bernie supporters like Obama. Um, and then a number of them, I think Hills will give this in the show notes, a number of them also like uh, Michelle Obama, because who doesn't? Um, and it's really important that Obama use this time to come out and campaign for Biden. He uh, There was a New York Times article that Hills sent me that said that Obama realized all the mistakes that he made when he did not go out for Hillary as hard as he should have. He didn't campaign like he should have. I mean, he was also president. He's also running the country. So uh, there's that. But Obama remains the most popular Democrat um, that people just love. And for him to get out in front and campaign for Joe Biden and make the argument for Joe Biden is going to be huge for the Biden campaign. Hillary, you want to talk about Obama for a second? Yeah, I mean, Obama Obama's popular, and he realized last time he didn't come out soon enough for Hillary Clinton when, when Hillary and Bernie had a really bruising primary. And then it's really telling that although Bernie folks are kind of soft on Biden, which, you know, it is what it is right now, uh, Obama is people, people – Bernie supporters like Obama. Maybe not all of them do, but 80 percent is an overwhelming majority of people who like Obama. So if Obama can help Biden get those – people who maybe just are not excited about Biden um, on board, that will be huge to unite the party and actually drive the youth turnout that Biden is lacking. Yeah. Uh, well stated. Um, and then uh, Stacey Abrams has, and others have warned the lack of having a minority candidates on the ticket for Biden. So they're basically warning against having a white woman on the ticket. So here's Biden's, uh, problem. Here's his dilemma, and it's not easy. <laughs> so on one hand, does he go with Warren, 
who will um the, the who the Bernie Bros will very much appreciate. They will suddenly back him. Warren's very very smart, right? Um, and a lot of people like her. The problem there is that she's white, and the ticket is to East Coast. Okay, so does he go with a minority voter? Does he go with a with uh with Kamala Harris or Stacey Abrams or Masto, uh from Nevada? Does he does he go does he go that route to try and drive up the Hispanic uh vote and the uh, African American vote, which he needs, right? But then do the the Bernie Bros come home for him if he chooses someone who's not Warren? And on the third hand, does he go with someone that he gets along with? Hills and I have this theory <laughs> that Joe Biden has a podcast, and it's called Here's the Deal. And you should actually listen to it. It's actually pretty good. It um, is pretty good. I, I enjoy it. Yeah. But <laughs> Hills and I have this theory that the people he invites on his podcast are people that he is auditioning for uh, different parts of his administration. For example, he had Gretchen Whitmore on there. She's auditioning for a VP. He had Amy Klobuchar on there, VP. He had Jay Inslee on there, head of the EPA. So um, this is a theory. It's not fact, but it's a theory. Does he go with someone that he gets along with on his podcast, like Whitmer and Klobuchar? They, they, they had very good chemistry. So you, you can see Biden's dilemma here, and it's not an easy choice. There, there's no easy solution. He has to go with his gut and what he thinks is going to be the best for his campaign, but Either way, he's going to win over some group of people, and he's going to alienate a different group. And then it's on his campaign and people like Bernie and Obama to get those people who are alienated by his VP pick or his candidacy to come home for him. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. He's got a he's got a huge dilemma, and I think some political scientists are split about how much a VP does. Just think, John McCain. I mean, Palin. Palin really brought him down. I think VP picks. They're not gonna like when you. They're not gonna be. They're not gonna be as important, I think, as they were maybe in the past. But VP picks really are important, and especially if you're looking to reach out to a group of voters. So Biden does definitely has a choice on his hand. Does he go for? I mean, obviously, I think maybe the the key is like someone who's ultra progress, who's very progressive, and maybe a person of color <laughs> could be a winning match. But you know, I don't know. It's gonna be his choice. He just has to make sure he picks it with thoroughness and thought behind it. Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, the last part of the appetizer, Hills, is we're going to talk about the state of the race. So I went to uh, four different uh, sites, four different um, predictors who uh, talked about the state of the race, where they view things and percentages and things of Biden versus Trump. So I'm going to go through the four of them and then we'll talk about it. Um, so the first one you already heard was uh, the M the NBC Wall Street Journal poll that had Biden at forty nine, Trump at forty two. Uh, the JHK forecast, which is a new forecast um, group that just came out, uh, they have Biden at sixty three point four percent chance of winning, Trump at thirty six point six percent, two seventy to win. They had Biden at two seventy nine, and Trump at two fifty nine. And then Center for Politics has Biden at 248, Trump at 233 with 57 votes for toss-ups. And those toss-ups are Arizona, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina. So, um, Hills, we did it. Biden won, Yay. right? It's over. Biden won. He's it's over. Yeah, we got him out. Yeah. Yay, we won. Uh, no. <laughs> um, you know, the, the important thing to remember is that polls are a snapshot in time. They are not indicative of where a race is at, where it will end up being. It's where is this race right now? And the general consensus seems to be that, as we said, Biden is ahead. He's winning in the uh, swing states. He's winning general elections. You know, things are looking good for him. But we cannot stop now. It's important to look back and re remember 2016 because Hillary was up in a lot of polls as well. And people thought Hillary was going to win and we saw what happened. So now is not the time to stop. We have to keep going. So if you can, donate. If you don't want to donate to Biden, donate to your local Senate campaign. Okay, Volunteer. Get involved. Call Congress. Instead of, there are things that you can do, even though we are still in quarantine, that can help Biden win the office. And once again, even if you don't like Biden, 
even if you think that Biden is not the best candidate. He is the candidate now. He is the candidate for the Democratic Party. And we have to get this guy out. Because to quote Bernie Sanders, our, our democracy may not survive four more years of Trump. I think I think you made a really important point that polls are only a snapshot in time. And I think a lot of people forget that, that, oh, Biden was up in April, so why do I need to help him? Yeah, he's up now, but that we're also having a pandemic going on. So like things could be a little bit inflated. Things, uh, the election's so many months away. And as we've seen through the news, you can talk about something for two weeks and then people forget about it in the third week, right? So like people don't, people have a very short attention span right now. Uh, and we cannot sleep on this. You just can't. You just can't. And if you don't like Biden, you know what? Fight for someone that you don't know. And if you believe in Bernie, that's exactly what he said. And now is the time to suck it up. Uh, and and you know what? You can you can vote for someone who can't vote. You can vote for someone who will be impacted by Trump. But at the end of the day, Biden will have to perform as a candidate. And I think these polls are going to get closer. Yeah, I I completely agree. And, you know, even if you, as Hill said, you don't agree with Biden, um, he is the, the Democrat now. And if you want, let's say you maybe you're very excited about a Senate race in Arizona, right? And you really want Mark Kelly to beat uh, Martha McSally. Well, then guess what? You should donate to Mark Kelly. And then by supporting Mark Kelly, you're supporting Joe Biden. Because if Mark Kelly gets in there and he has Donald Trump as the president, then you know, okay, great, Mark Kelly's there, but how is he going to be able to get anything done? You need a Democratic president and vice president to sign those bills, to push things through, and, you know, you, you have to go and, and vote down the line with Dems. You don't have to be riding with Biden, but you need to be uh, maybe tagging along with Biden. <laughs> you don't have to be in the in the train with, with Biden going to D.C., but you better at least be running alongside on the tracks. Or uh, maybe in a car that goes most of the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you can't run along. The, yeah. Yeah, that was good. I, I, I enjoy that. Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully you guys learned something. And we've got uh, your entree is coming up next. For your entree today, we thought it would be a really good exercise to call out Republicans that, on everything they do. So Republicans, as you know, they say they have a belief system in deficit spending, immigration, pro-life, federalism, and they say they believe in this stuff. But as the coronavirus pandemic has shown, they don't actually believe in it at all. It's what? Just, it, yeah, I know. They lie. I They don't? Want, oh, my gosh. Hills. Yeah. This is devastating. They, don't believe, they only believe in power? What? No matter, what? <laughs> no matter which way it takes? What? <laughs> So oh we're gonna God. go through <laughs> we're gonna go through four topics that Republicans say they believe a certain thing in, a certain party line in, and show you why the coronavirus pandemic has exposed that they don't actually believe any of that. And what Democrats can do, because we give ground on these issues all the time and just we're not actually pushing the narrative. The Republicans always control the narrative and we just respond to it. And that needs to change. And I think it, it's very easy to change it. It doesn't have to work this way. So let's get started. Number one, topic one, is about deficit spending and, you know, fiscal responsibility. So let's talk about fiscal responsibility. The Republicans fancy themselves as the party of austerity and good fiscal management. You hear this all the time. Well, I'm fiscally conservative. But what does that actually mean? So several times during Obama's term, they screamed about how he was reckless with spending you know, they've been do using the same playbook for 30 years. You always hear about the tax and spend Democrats, right? The tax and spend Democrats. During 2009, the worst financial crisis in modern memory up until now, they all voted against the Obama stimulus bill because they said it was too expensive. You know, Obama actually brought down the 2009 stimulus bill from all his experts were saying it should be $1.5 to get the economy back fast. And he watered it down to just under a trillion dollars because of the Republicans, because he wanted them to get them on board. Meanwhile, almost all of them, I think all of them, maybe one, two, maybe all of them <laughs> voted against it. Meanwhile, when Republicans are in charge, and I will link an article in the show notes about this, 
they put through a huge 1.9 trillion tax cut in 2017 if you remember that uh and all of them voted for the necessary stimulus bill with covid that went even further and cost even more than 2009 so republicans only about fiscal austerity when it comes to anything that will help people meanwhile if it has a tax cut in it if it de- deprives the government of income they usually are for it no matter what how however much it will cost to the federal debt and as you've seen in i will also link this in the show notes the federal debt has skyrocketed under trump not saying it hasn't skyrocketed under democrats but trump is not just because he's republican (laughs) doesn't mean he's absolved from this as well so democrats worry always about seeing being seen as the bad guys on this and it's time to change the messaging and not worry who is good or bad it's don't worry about the media the dems are so concerned about winning the media and it clearly doesn't matter because trump does whatever he wants and he's still doing you know he still does what he does every time what can be democrats always fail to put their foot on the gas pedal and it's time that democrats control the messaging about finances control what it means and i think people will get behind big spending bills if they know exactly how it's going to benefit them so that's what i think they should do gosh (laughs) oh that is very well said um you know if this pandemic were happening under obama um there's no way that Republicans would get behind a two trillion dollar, uh, you know, basically bill for spending. There's just no way. And as soon as the Democrat comes back into the office, all of a sudden, and you're we're calling it right now, you're going to see Republicans say, "Oh, we can't do it. Deficit. It's just it's just too much. It's just you know it's out of control. We have to get it under control." And it happens all the time. And I think with this, with the exception being Rand Paul, I think was the one person who did not vote for either of these because he's crazy and has coronavirus himself. Um, so I think he's one of the people who did not vote for this because he's all about spending. So, you know, with the exception being Rand Paul, I think every single Republican voted for this, even though it's $2 trillion. And now we, we, and Congress just passed and another half a trillion dollars. So, you know, and and look, and Hills and I aren't saying that we don't need this because we clearly do. It's, it's the right thing to do is to spend money now to try and save the economy because we're clearly in a recession, right? So you have to do it. The issue becomes why do Republicans do it when there's a Republican in charge, but suddenly find their fiscal conservative when there's a Democrat in charge? And it just speaks to and it's a huge hypocrisy, and the, and you guys should just remember this next time there's a dem in charge, because as Hill said, one point two trillion dollars is what Obama needed, and he brought it down to get Republicans on board, and they still wouldn't play ball. Oh, it's so infuriating, Hills. <laughs> it's it's infuriating, isn't it? And people like Trump because Trump talks like a. a dumbed down but semi normal person, right? People get really pissed off when a when a when a politician speaks and they speak you know obama inspired hope in his speech but i'm getting to a point here where trump talks very simply and people just understand that and i think that's why people like andrew cuomo in this in this time as well but it's very easy to call republicans out on their bs like it's all they've done it all it's all in fact like a democratic president or democratic senate can easily just go say Okay, then the Republicans voted for this much money. Then why are they concerned now? Why are they concerned when it's going to help you? Why is it going to concern when it's going to help um, these groups of people when we're trying to pass more social services, right? Like Democrats just don't say anything about it. And it's very it will be very easy for Biden or anyone else to just be on the offensive. Make the GOP play on the defensive for once. Like don't get they don't have to give this ground. We have fact. It's happened. And I agree with you. Republicans would never let Obama pass a, you know, $1.5 trillion COVID stimulus bill, which I agree with. Even we're saying it's necessary, but they would never have let him pass it. They would have cried all the way home about the debt and you would have never heard the end of it. And anyway, we don't need to give this ground and I don't think we should. And Hills, I'm just going to end with one small thing here. Um, 
you know, I think it's important. So the Democrats, right, are the party of big government and good government. And when people are struggling, right, we need to help them out. Government needs to help them out. Okay. Republicans, at least recently, are under the party of if a Democrat is in office, do whatever it takes to get them out, even if it means hurting people. And when a Republican is in office, then suddenly it's do whatever you want. And it's time that Democrats realize this and fight back. And Josh, you actually made me remember there's a Key and Peel skit from uh, 2012, I believe. He plays Obama and they're in a negotiation and Obama's like, okay, I want um, I want lower taxes on the rich. And all the Republicans, the actors are like, no, we want higher taxes. <laughs> and <laughs> it is a classic skit. And I'm going to put that in the show notes too, because you should really watch it. It'll make you laugh. Uh, it'll, it'll, <laughs> it'll make you laugh about how ridiculous Republicans are. But I think it underscores exactly what you were just saying, which is the Republicans are just for whatever the Democrat Republicans are against whatever the Democrats for. It doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I'm laughing thinking about the skit. Uh, uh, topic number two, immigration. So Trump stopped all immigration to the U.S. and applications for green cards. Just recently, he cited COVID and the fact that 26 million people lost jobs. On the face of this is like, okay, I get it. But if you think about it, then it doesn't make quite much sense. So Trump rails about immigrants taking jobs and putting in, you know, he put heavy restrictions on immigration when the economy was good, when we were creating jobs. Now that there are no jobs to be had, how again are immigrants taking jobs? Like, I, I, it's clear that immigration was about skin color and not about taking jobs, right? You could say immigration right now is about we're stopping the flow of people who may or may not have the virus coming into the country, but... His his stopping of immigration doesn't make sense if you think about it in that context, right? This is not why he issued the order. So how is it okay to stop to help fight COVID, but at the same time encourage states to reopen? It doesn't make sense. One thing doesn't square with the other. You can't stop all, all immigration, but encourage states to get back to business, right? It doesn't That doesn't square with what he's saying it's supposed to be doing. You, if he's putting restrictions on immigrants and immigration when jobs, when the economy was good, when we we're actually making jobs, how does it make sense then that immigration was all about jobs in the first place, right? Because he's putting restrictions on now when we've lost all these jobs. So it's clear that it was never about jobs. It was never about they're taking our jobs. It was always about a racial aspect to this. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a great point. And actually, um, <clears throat> there was a Washington Post article. It might have been Axios. I'm not sure which one. One of the two. Um, had a uh, leak that Stephen Miller was on a call with his uh, supporters and basically said that Trump's 60-day ban uh, is going to help usher in more long-term changes to the U.S. Uh, uh, immigration policy. So clearly, you know, this is coming from the White House senior advisor. Like clearly, this is not just about coronavirus. Trump's using that as a scapegoat, and they're using this to put in place longer-term policies that will affect immigrants and immigration and people who want to come into this country. And if you look at it at a very surface level, you may just say, oh, okay, well, he's trying to keep us safe. But it's not about safety. It's about Trump, you know, being a racist. <laughs> That's what it comes down yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah. And if the economy was good and he put this in this immigration thing in place, then you're like, okay, well, he doesn't want, he's saying, oh, okay, well, they don't want it to take the jobs that we're producing right now. Or it's just the timing doesn't line up with what he says he's doing and what his practice is. Like, it just doesn't make any sense, right? You're putting restrictions on the when the economy is good, and then you're pr putting restrictions when the economy is bad, then it just it means it's not about the economy. It's about you wanting to put restrictions on immigrants in, in general. <laughs> so yeah. it's just hypocrisy, hypocrisy, just seeing through exactly what he does. And whether you agree with it or not, we're saying it's inconsistent, and it's also, it makes no sense. So uh, federalism, the concept of federalism, which is, the, you know, the, the balance between state and national governments. And Josh, I'm going to leave this one to you. Yeah. So 
if you've watched any of Trump's um, coronavirus press conference slash rallies, um, you've noticed that Trump has gone. Uh, he he goes from saying, you know, the we're the backups to I control the states, and the GOP has always stressed they always believe that states' rights were best. But it's very clear that they really only care if the state doesn't do what they want. So if you don't open up the economy to help Trump, if you, uh, you know, then you're a bad state. If you're not giving, uh, we're going to hold withhold funding from you. Um, if you're not going to benefit Trump, you know, we're not going to help you get testing. I think Hills gave the example two weeks ago that Florida got everything that they wanted, but Colorado got, you know, suffer a day. Massachusetts got stuff for like 18% of what they wanted. So Trump clearly only cares about your state if you will benefit him in the next uh, general election. So, um, And right now, states are competing with each other while the federal government is just playing favorites. You have New York competing against Maryland, competing against Florida, competing against California for you know supplies. And Trump's out here saying, well, hey, you know, we're the backup. This is on the states. Governors should do more. Um, they don't really care about federalism. Or they'd be helping the states actually take the lead. They're just leaving the states up to themselves. You know, all these governors are, are, are asking for money for the states. And Trump's saying no. He's saying no, we're not going to give you guys money. You know, the governors need to figure it out on, the, on their own. Trump is so desperate to not get blamed that he's thinking... If I just put it all on the governors, right, then it'll be their fault and not mine. I mean, the perfect state to look at is Maryland. And as we talked about on this podcast, I've been a big fan of how Republican Larry Hogan has handled the coronavirus. So as governor, Larry Hogan was told by the Trump administration that he has to go figure out how to get more tests because they're not going to give him any testing. You know, each state gets a little bit of testing. You know, and so Hogan went ahead and with the help of his wife, who is an immigrant from South Korea, uh, he got 500,000 tests from South Korea, 500,000 tests just for the state of Maryland from South Korea. And he worked on this for weeks, like four weeks. And it was a big deal. People in Maryland here were very, very happy with that. And, you know, we're going to get increased testing which is going to help Maryland open. Um, and when Trump was asked about this, Trump said, quote, he didn't need to get the tests. He needed to get some knowledge. <laughs> I <Wow>. mean, <laughs> I mean, I, yes. yeah. <laughs> what do we do about that? What do we do? About that? <laughs> needs to just get some knowledge, man. I mean, <laughs> look, I, I think you, everything you said is, is exactly right. I don't care about federal, like, we're not saying that we think <laughs> Trump, they should be doing this. This is what Republicans say they give they give a crap about. This is what they say that states' rights is important. Oh, we need to have state power, right? And then meanwhile, you have Trump saying that, like, I'm going to authorize all these states to reopen. Or he helps certain states and other, other states. It's just hypocrisy. And we're just pointing out things that Republicans are doing that Democrats can just make, put, put Republicans on the defensive for once. Like, like. The fact that Maryland has to get 500,000 tests from South Korea, the federal government has immense power to help. The federal government could have put in place uh, things for PPE back a few weeks ago. They put, could have put in place things for testing right now. The federal, even if you want states to take the lead, right, even if you want them to. And some states say, yes, give us the supplies. We got this. They're not doing anything for the supplies. And all Trump is doing is trying to play the blame game. And this is why he has he has this huge task force of reopening the country. So when it fails, he can say, oh, everyone else was on this task force, see? It's all about having him not get blamed. And honestly, this is what a leader should, this is like the textbook thing and what leaders shouldn't do. And I mean, it's only okay if how long we tolerate it. And, and you know, the other thing else is that, as you just mentioned, the a, a state, a single state in the United States should not have to negotiate with foreign countries about how to get additional testing or masks or whatever. That's the job of the government. The government should be on the phone with South Korea, with China, and saying, hey, we need help. Can you give us 
you know, a million test kits? Can you give us two million? Can you give us whatever you can give us? You know, we'll, we'll take, but Trump doesn't want any of that. Trump is so concerned about reopening the economy, downplaying the coronavirus, that he is, that he's so concerned with that, that he's willing to, you know, put people's lives at risk. And this is something that Biden and the Democrats should drive home. You know, how, I mean, a simple Biden message can be, how hard has it been in your state? Each state's been hit incredibly hard. Imagine if we had a competent big government that could help you out, that could say, you know, hey, we're going to go get you 100,000 tests from China. And don't worry about that governor. That's my job. My job as the president is to get you states. And once we get a million tests, then we can figure out how to, you know, put them, give them out evenly or distribute them by need or whatever. But the government has to take some, some lead. And the government's just not taking the lead. And it's funny, I was listening to a, to a podcast, and I know I listen to other podcasts besides this one. I'm Another sorry. podcast? What? I know. <laughs> um, and they were saying that people don't like big government until a crisis hits. And then everyone wants the big government again. And people, I think, are hopefully realizing the negative effect that having a, uh, a small government during this crisis or an incompetent government can have on people. It, it hurts people. It, it kills people. Yeah, and, and the the reason why 2014 with Ebola, the reason why we didn't have an Ebola crisis in this country is because Obama and his team made sure that it wasn't going to be a crisis, right? They, like, it was a very different disease, first of all, but Second of all, like they invested resources and time and and strategy in order to make sure the virus was didn't get and spread in in the United States. Like it just it's just when things go right, people don't understand how much you need the competence, right? It's just they they don't get it because it's not affecting them at the moment. They say, "Oh, everything is fine." Well, it's because people made it fine, <laughs> um, but. Last thing we're going to talk about is being pro-life. So I don't really mean this in the terms of abortion, but that is also, you know, something we've talked about. And this <laughs> it is uh, is included in this a little bit, but it isn't being pro-life. It, if, if you're pro-life, doesn't that mean being pro-life throughout a person's life, right? It's not just when the when a baby's in the womb or anything like that. Many Republicans are pushing states to open which would ensure a spike in COVID cases and put millions in danger. Just look at Georgia. Georgia is reopening right now. And meanwhile, they haven't even peaked. They haven't done any of that. They're having higher cases a day. So how are you being pro-life if you're endangering the health of people in your state and also people travel? So it's people in all the states. So I don't think that's a pro-life message. And if you care about life, not just in the woman's body, then you should also try to protect as many people as possible and have really good public health laws. So there are some exceptions to this, like in Ohio, Governor DeWine has been doing a good job. As you said, in Maryland, Republican Governor Larry Hogan has been doing a good job. But you see all these protests that want to reopen the government. They are not, they are not popular protests. They, were ex they are extremist Republicans funded by conservative groups it is documented. There are all these conservative groups that are actually spreading this information and funding people to go out and protest. Just like in 2009 with the Tea Party rallies. I will link a, uh, an article by the Washington Post. These things are not just people who are fed up. These are people who are spurred on to acting by billionaires that want the government to reopen so they can make money again. So if you think the Republican Party is pro-life, you need to reassess what that really means, whether that just means they want to control a woman's body or they really mean they're pro-life throughout a person's life. And this this crisis is showing us that Republicans are not pro-life because they are willing to let people die. You can remember, Josh, you remember this, the lieutenant governor of Texas, uh, the lieutenant governor of Texas said that, you know, if, if one to two percent of the population die, then that's worth it to reopen the economy. Are you kidding me? That you're saying you're pro-life, please. please. I mean, the president of the pro-life party was out there yesterday telling people to inject themselves with disinfectants. It's crazy. It's crazy. You know what? And, and here's, here's the clip from the lieutenant governor talking about how we should reopen the economy. Listen here. No one reached out to me and said, 
uh, as a senior citizen, uh, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all America loves for your children and grandchildren? And if that's the exchange, I'm all in. How crazy is that? I mean, that's just nuts to think. And that's from a Republican. You don't see Democrats saying that. It's only the Republican Party. So, so uh, that those are those are just some of the things that Republicans have been inconsistent about and actually don't believe in that the COVID price crisis exposes. So, Democrats, please just just put them on the offensive for once, please. It'll be great. Please. That's all we're asking for. That's all we're asking for. Just a little offensive, never hurt. Hopefully, you guys learned something there about why re- Republicans are, you know not really believing in what they preach. And we have a life under lockdown section coming for you next. So for your life under lockdown section, we have a question for you. So Hills, my question for you is, what are you looking forward to doing right after the coronavirus ends? When all this is over, what's the first thing that you're going to do? Oh boy. Well, I've been thinking about this and... So the first thing that comes to my mind, and I will explain why, is order the biggest Chinese food meal I (laughs) ever will eat. And the reason why is that, yes, I live in New York City, but a lot of, almost all the Chinese restaurants are closed, and they have been closed for months. I think both the folks who who work in them have been at home, and I think the supply chain has been a little bit disrupted, in addition to racism. So uh, the first thing I'm going to do is when the Chinese places reopen, I'm going to order a huge meal. Second thing I'm going to do is book a trip uh, because I need to go someplace. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the two wow. things. What about you? You know, the, thing, the first thing I'm going to do is go to a restaurant and just like sit down at a restaurant and just like enjoy just like being at a restaurant. Um, and the other thing I'm going to do is I'm gonna probably going to go to the movies. I, I used to love going to movie theaters. And it's so, and you can't do it now. And, you know, there's nothing quite like, you know, going to the movies and getting one of those big popcorns and just, uh, just enjoying it. Uh, so those are the two things I'm going to do. It could be, uh, you know, Trump saving America. And I'll go in and say, yeah, let's see what it's about. Let's give it a shot. Are you still paying for your movie club? Uh, it's actually, there's no cost anymore. It's free. Ooh. It's free while the pandemic is going on. So, no, I'm not paying for it. <laughs> but, yeah, I still have it. Well, well, I mean, you can't use it right now, so I guess that... Exactly. So, it's totally free right now. So, uh, it's important to tell people that this will end. The pandemic will come to a close. It will eventually end, and, you know, we'll, we'll begin to go back to life as normal. Uh, we just got to wait it out as long as we can. Yeah, I mean, as, as soon as there's a viral drug or vaccine, we're good to go. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, The second thing, Hills, is, and I just wanted to get your feedback on this story. Uh, There's been reports that Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, is dead. Now, this is not confirmed. I think he is still alive. But he went in for um, some kind of uh, surgery, I think. It was like some kind of heart surgery because he's fat and he smokes and he doesn't move all that often. Um, And... You know, he has been missing in North Korea's biggest events. There was uh, a um, a ceremony, it was a very important ceremony for his grandfather that he was not at. His uh, sister, I think, or cousin who was exiled has now been brought back into the country. Um, of course, people in North Korea are saying that he's fine. He's just taking a really long nap, probably. Um, but uh, something to really look out for. A really long nap. Jeez. <laughs> something to look out for because, you know, this could be something where... He, um, you know, he's, if, if, if he's dead, I mean, first off, good riddance, he's a terrible person, but also that can have major ramifications for, uh, American foreign policy, for the, for South Korea, for China, for Japan. I mean, him dying would be a huge, uh, problem because in North Korea, he has no one to take over. Like he has no successor and they've never had that before. So interesting story to watch there out of North Korea and, you know, see if he ends up, you know, pulling through or if he ends up dead. Because right now the number two thing on Twitter trending is Kim Jong-un dead. And it was the number one thing trending yesterday. So something to keep in mind. 
Yeah, I think maybe his sister might be the next person, but I don't, you're right. I don't think he has decided who his successor is going to be. But, I mean, anything with North Korea, we thought Kim Jong-un was going to be the one who's going to be a little bit better to the world than he was. And, you know, look at him. He decided to do everything. He decided to change nothing and advance the nuclear program. So I think North Korea, I mean, if he goes, it's not, it, it's going to be destabilized a bit, but... You know, it's really depending on who's who's ever the leader. We could see some instability, especially if he doesn't have someone picked out already. Um, so it's something right. to look forward to. It may not, may be good, may be bad. Who knows at this point? But um, you know, we don't know. Will the will his successor be someone who is even more aggressive than he is? Will someone open up and maybe try and unite with South Korea again? We just have literally no idea. We really just don't. And as we all know. When you take a unstable country and you insert instability, it always ends poorly. Does it? Does it end poorly? <laughs> no, it ends, no, okay. it ends great. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a very, very sweet dessert for you. And it's all about the three-course politics dream that we have. So you're going to want to stay tuned for that. <laughs> So for your dessert today, we're gonna all we're gonna talk about the dream we have for three course politics. So if we had a million dollars or less, we Josh and I have been <laughs> tossing this around. We'd create a three course politics media, which would encompass everything you know from from podcasting to news. And in our ideal world, Josh and I would uh, host the anchor desk. Uh, we'd have Steve Kornacki, the elections analyst from NBC or MSNBC, along with Dave Wasserman, who is from the Cook Political Report, who is probably the smartest man on Twitter. They would be on the big board. They'd be on the smart board talking, all, going through all the election, the polling and the precinct breakdowns for each of the election nights. I mean, these are two of the smartest people. And Josh, who would we have for political analysis? You would have Kyle Kondik from the Center for Politics and Rachel Mike Is that how we pronounce her name? I'm not a pronounce her name. I think so. She's also another uh, political analysis. She, I think she was one of the people who started um, the JHK forecast. Two very, very smart people giving us uh, political analysis. And it would be the best. I mean, it would just be, I mean, these are some of the best political minds that I think a lot of people don't think about. Uh, when it comes to uh, people who know what they're talking about. And these are people that we admire and people that maybe one day, God willing, will get on the, the program. Hills, maybe. Maybe. Maybe we're going to try. <laughs> maybe if they find any love in their hearts. <laughs> but this would be, this is the, the ultimate dream, is to be doing this and to, whether it be on TV or whether, it, it would have to be on TV. Uh, so we, we'd be on TV, some network would, uh, would pay us and it'd be just a three-course media, three-course politics media. And we would just bring you breaking news. We cover election days. Hills and I would each have our own command center open for her, for uh, <laughs> for election days. And if you haven't seen or heard about these command centers, Hills and I go all out for, for these nights. Oh, when, when we talk about command centers, we talk about laptop open, <laughs> Twitter open, uh, we have a list on Twitter that we have uh, cultivated and and curated uh, to bring us only the the quickest news. We have election analysis opened and refreshed. We have the TV on. We have our phones ready. It is that's what we call the command center, and that's how we uh, <laughs> bring you the news so quickly. And usually, we have Chinese food of some kind available. <laughs> oh, the Chinese food is a must. <laughs> You can't have a command center without Chinese food. We also have uh, our own different like maps open up so we can see the polling coming in at, at various states and various locations. It's really wonderful. It's really it's really a treat. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to link the Twitter handles of each of the four people that we mentioned, Steve Kornacki, Dave Wasserman, Kyle, Kyle Kondik, and Rachel Bykofer, just in case if you are on Twitter and you want to follow them because if you want to get the same information that we get. They are really great people to follow and they give really good analysis as well. Yeah, they're all very smart and they know what they're, what they're talking about. Josh, what other podcasts would we have for Three Course Politics Media? We'd probably do a maybe a lifestyle podcast. Oh yeah, I think we'd do some kind of live podcast where we could go around and, and tour the country and 
you know, we, we would have guests on, we would have, you know, the live, the, the live shows. I think the live shows would be a lot of fun. Yeah, you stream it on YouTube and you're good to go. Yeah, Kills. it's just, it's so easy. All we need is millions of dollars. So there you go. If, if any of you listening have the millions of dollars to help see this, you can get in on the ground floor. <laughs> we can call the the whatever, the room that we do this in uh, with your name on it. It could yep. be the blank uh, broadcasting room. Yeah. Um, and you can have, you can be a special guest on our show. So all you just need is a couple hundred thousand, maybe a million dollars. It's not that much. Yeah. Just, just if you have a couple extra million dollars just lying around, just give it to me and Hills. And we'll make this uh, three-course media dream come true. Yeah, we'll make your million dollars uh, half it. We'll get we'll half <laughs> it and give you it back when we when we fold. No, <laughs> so it's just something. This is something that Josh and I have been batting around for you know pipe dream of of ours, and we wanted to share it with you, our listeners, and um, get you excited. Anyway, we are trying to actually have one of these people on. The, the podcast if they are so nice to do so so we will keep you updated on how that goes so you know that's one good reason to stick around and keep listening yeah for sure um and another reason to keep listening and sticking around for the rest of this podcast is the answer to the pre-dinner shot and that is coming up next so you have waited the entire podcast you've gone through your appetizer your entree your dessert your uh, life under lockdown and all you want to know is the answer to the question so the question once again was how many u.s presidents have lost the popular vote okay so they've lost the popular vote and they still go on to become president of the united states the answer is five there are five u.s presidents who have lost the popular vote and have gone on to become president so the first was john quincy adams from uh in 1824 he lost the popular vote by 38,149 votes and still went on to become president. The second one is Rutherford B. Hayes in 1876. He lost the popular vote by 254,235 votes, still went on to become president. Uh, Benjamin Harrison is number three in 1888. He lost the popular vote by 90,000 596 votes and still went on to become president of the United States. Now, those are all big numbers. We're going to see a big shift here for the next one. George W. Bush, you all remember this. He, in 2000, he lost the popular vote to Al Gore by 543,895 votes and still went on to become president of the United States. And while all those numbers are big, the biggest one was 2016. Donald Trump lost the popular vote by 2,868,686 votes. And somehow he still went on to become president of the United States. Wow. Wow. I mean, this is both a function of the amount of people living in the United States and also the way our system is set up. That's a that is a lot of votes and also very very cool to hear the answer to this question. Yeah, I mean, you hear people talk about, well, why does my vote matter? And then you show them that Trump lost the popular vote by three million votes and still went wound up becoming president. And it's like it's hard to give that answer to people when they hear that information. Something's got to change. Well, I think the electoral college is it's a bit outdated, but also that Democrats also need to compete in places that. Places that are red or blue, like I feel like if the candidate puts some effort in, the places don't always necessarily have to be red or blue. You know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, we can go. We we can develop a message that will work in Iowa and Nebraska. It might be harder, but we could yeah. do it. Yeah. But yeah, the electoral college is not ideally how things work. Yeah, I would much prefer that we shift to just whoever gets the most votes wins, and you know that'd be easier. But you know. It is what it is. So anyways, that was yeah. the answer to your pre-dinner shot question. Excellent question, Josh. I hope everyone was uh, very excited by the answer. And before you go, we just have a couple of things. The intro and the outro music is by Brett Ilsberg. If you enjoy the show, please hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. Please hit the subscribe button. It will help us. It will help you. It will help <laughs> everybody. 
If you enjoy the show, just subscribe. It just takes a moment on your podcast app. Just hit subscribe. Super easy. Tell your friends to listen. If you enjoy this, you can send the link to your friends. It's very easy. Lots of podcast apps have the sharing link on them and will help people get to know us and get to know what we're talking about. Again, subscribe, please. That will that will be the most helpful. And if you have any questions at all of anything that we ever talk about, you can always email us at threecoursepolitics at gmail.com. Uh, and thank you all for listening, and we uh, will see you again very soon. Bye, everybody. Bye.